Robots Radio presents... In 2006, director Martin Campbell and star Daniel Craig gave the world a gritty reimagining of Britain's greatest spy. In 2020, we take a budget bourbon and throw it all the way back to ancient times. The film is Casino Royale. The whiskey is ancient age. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2006 James Bond film Casino Royale. Brad, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. I'm a little bummed because we tried to time up this episode with the release of the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. But thanks to our friend, the coronavirus, they have delayed the opening of this movie all the way until November. But you know what? Who cares? This is a really good movie, and we're going to talk about it now. I really like Casino Royale. Well, and now we get to go see the movie for our birthdays. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we both have November birthdays. So we'll be first in line for No Time to Die in November. But yeah, Casino Royale, man. I mean, this this is the movie of like my teenage years. Like When this came out, I was 16 years old, and I just loved this movie. I, I And honestly... Out of every movie on this podcast we've done, this is the one that I've probably seen, well, not the most times. Star Wars would take the cake there. But out of a non-Star Wars movie, this might be the one I've seen the most. I've probably seen it five or six times, Bob. Wow, that's that's a lot for you, Brad. <laughs> that actually is. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this because, you know, as I was watching this movie, I always take notes and I took some notes, but... I didn't take a whole lot of notes, so I'm really excited to see where we go with this conversation. James Bond movies are a really fascinating kind of beast to tackle because I didn't know at first which movie to put on the list for us to watch. I didn't know if we should go Skyfall, which seems to be sort of the critical favorite among James Bond movies, or Casino Royale. I knew I wanted to do a Daniel Craig, and the other two are not worth talking about. So it was like uh, Casino Royale, Skyfall... And I think Casino Royale is the more James Bondy of the two movies. Skyfall definitely has that sort of darker, grittier take on it. It, it kind of strips James Bond down to who he is at his emotional core. It makes him reckon with some things. This one, you know, it's it's in Monte Carlo and they're, you know, they're in a casino and James Bond's in a tuxedo. And I just thought, let's go Casino Royale because I didn't know at first whether you had even seen this movie. And I'm really pleasantly surprised that you've seen it five or six times, which should make a really interesting Brad Explains, because you should be able to kind of recite this movie beat for beat by now. So if you're new to the podcast, we have a segment called Brad Explains, where Brad breaks down the movie that he just saw, oftentimes for the first time, but not this time. So Brad, will you walk our listeners through a spoiler-filled introduction to Casino Royale? Yeah, if you haven't somehow seen the movie by now, you know, press pause here and go press play on your TV. It's it's a great movie. It's fun. It's fast paced. Go check it out. But for now, I would love to explain what the movie Casino Royale is all about. So at the start of the movie, you see James Bond earning his 007 status. 
Uh, he kills off some guy who was a bad guy. And you probably don't need to know much more than that because they don't tell you much more than that. But the beautiful thing is from the very start of this movie, you get the sense that this is going to be a much darker version of James Bond than you've seen in the past. You know, you you see him murdering a man in a bathroom and he's he's shoving his face into a sink full of water and and, and drowning him. And so you get the sense that this is going to be a much darker movie than what you might be used to. So the film takes off from there and you find out that there is a African warlord who is using a uh, European, he looks to be Swedish or, you know, some sort of northeastern European man named Le Chiffre. And he is a banker and he takes their money and he tries to make a lot of money by destroying a prototype airplane and he bets that when the airplane is destroyed, that the stocks will fall and he'll make millions of dollars. However, James figures out this plot. He stops the plane from being destroyed. And Le Chiffre loses millions and millions of dollars, $100 million to be exact. And so in order to win the money back, he organizes a massive poker tournament that is set up for him to win all of his money back so that he does not have his head chopped off by the African warlord. And so the MI6 sends James Bond to win the tournament, forcing Le Chiffre to come back into custody of MI6 to protect him from the warlord. And he can give them all sorts of information about bad people around the world that he did banking for. And so the crux of the movie is set around this poker tournament. And throughout the movie, you find out that Bond is actually falling in love with the British accountant that is sent to keep track of their money. Uh, her name is Vesper. And they slowly fall in love through the course of the movie. A bunch of twists happen and James Bond wins. And it's it's kind of hard to go much more than that. This is a really convoluted movie, Bob. It is. It, like it's It's weirdly simple. And then all of a sudden, I feel like they introduce eight more layers of things that happen. And so there's just a lot of backstabbing and a lot of double agents towards the end of the movie. We'll get into that in a little bit. But before we kind of kick off our regularly scheduled content here, you know, we usually get into talking about the direction and the writing and the acting. I want to put this movie in context a little bit. The last James Bond movie to be made before this was the last film featuring Pierce Brosnan in the role. And I feel like from Connery all the way to Brosnan, the, the James Bond character had basically been, you know, five or six guys, however many it was at that point, playing the same guy. Like it was, you know, clearly in different eras, but they were all playing a certain type of Bond. They were playing this suave, debonair, dark haired, slim man. And the studio, MGM, kind of relaunches or reboots the Bond franchise with this guy, Daniel Craig, who is shorter, a little stockier. He's blonde. He talks differently. He's much more brutish than the other sort of more suave Bonds were. You get a very different Bond character in this movie. And it's hard for me sometimes to even put Daniel Craig you know, to kind of rank him among the Bonds, because this James Bond is just so different than any other iteration of Bond that we had before. You know, it comes out in 2006. We are pre The Dark Knight, but we're post Born Identity. And I think a lot of times people don't give Born Identity a lot of credit for what it did for the action genre. 
The last time we saw James Bond, he was windsurfing on a melting glacier that some North Korean guy was shooting a laser at from space. Like James Bond had become so campy and so over the top that people just didn't really gravitate to that anymore. And so when they relaunched Bond, I think what they were going for was this sort of Jason Bourneified reboot. I don't know, Brad, did you like could you see the difference between the last Brosnan movie, Die Another Day, and this one, Casino Royale? Yeah, so I actually am not like a massive James Bond fan. Uh, I've seen a few of the old Sean Connery ones. Uh, what's his name? Roger. Roger Moore. Roger Moore. Yeah. I, so I've seen like some of the older ones, but I've honestly never seen the any of the Pierce Brosnan ones. I, I think I might have caught a clip here to, there on TV, but I've never seen the Pierce Brosnan ones. The Daniel Craig James Bond really are my core education about James Bond. Well, then take it from me, my friend, this <laughs> I think that this, you know, for people who have seen all the Bond movies, this is just a very different representation of the character. And I think a lot of people say that it's closer to what you get in the original books that the character is based on. I wouldn't know. I haven't read any James Bond books, but I really do think you can see the influence of that sort of grittier hand to hand combat kind of espionage that you saw in the Bourne movies having its influence here on what is, you know, the biggest espionage franchise in the world. Well, and I think that the film even talks about that. Like you you see M, you know, played by Judy Dench, pointing out to Bond, you know, you are a blunt instrument, and I don't know if what we need right now is a blunt instrument. Bond, this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand, but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand. So you want me to be half monk, half hitman? Any thug can kill. I want you to take your ego out of the equation and to judge the situation dispassionately. I have to know I can trust you and that you know who to trust. And since I don't know that, I need you out of my sight. Go and stick your head in the sand somewhere and think about your future. Because these bastards want your head. And I'm seriously considering feeding you to them. And so I, I think you get the debonair, smooth, suave side of him at points in this movie, but you definitely know what kind of a killer he is. You know, he is not a smooth, suave killer. He is a blunt object that is going to destroy things until the job is done. Absolutely. He's very reckless. I mean, and that's kind of the defining trait of this version of Bond. You know, when I look at this movie, Brad... And part of the reason I think I was waffling back and forth between Skyfall and this to go on the list, and maybe we'll get to Skyfall someday, is because I feel like there's never just been a perfect Bond movie. Like, this movie's really good, and I like it a whole lot. But I, I think you would probably agree, it's not a perfect movie. And I think what everyone wants is that one perfect 10 out of 10 Bond movie. And I think if you take most of this movie and add a little bit of Skyfall into it, it would be perfect. But there are still some things in this movie that just, oh, like there's not enough gadgets for me and there's not enough, you know, it, it does a really good job with getting into some of Bond's personal baggage, but it doesn't really go too deep into it. And I'm really excited to get into talking about the movie because I want to hear what you think of the proposition that this is not a flawless movie. But before we get into that, Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is Daniel Craig in his first outing as James Bond. And Brad, especially for you, a guy who really has only ever known James Bond to be Daniel Craig. What do you think of him in this movie? Well, I think I think first off, 
you know, the the person that I think of when I think of James Bond would be Sean Connery, which mm. I, I think most people would probably say that. There's just that classic picture of him on the front of the, uh, you know, the movie poster. He's the classic James Bond. And so seeing Daniel Craig come into this role with this kind of fever pitch intensity to everything he does, I just absolutely love him. You know, he he has that gritty jawline type character that no matter what's happening around him, you can see his brain working on 17 contingency plans on what he's going to do next. I, I think if there's anything I love most about Daniel Craig, it's his eyes. He acts with his eyes so well. He commands the camera. He commands the other characters in the room every everywhere he goes. He just has this sense of presence about him that is this aura of confidence and command. And the beautiful thing is in the moments where that aura kind of comes down and you get to see past it into when he's uncertain or scared, it makes for really touching, beautiful moments. I, I truly, truly think Daniel Craig is a spectacular James Bond. All right. So here's my big struggle with Daniel Craig as Bond. Because I think that he is phenomenal. I just feel like those of us who grew up with Bond pre-Daniel Craig have this image burned in our mind of what James Bond is or what he's supposed to be. And I really appreciate that Like we're in a day and age now where we're kind of breaking down these expectations for characters. Like, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man? Why can't Spider-Man be Miles Morales instead of Peter Parker? I really appreciate those conversations. And, and I think... This movie was such a shock to my system because it's such a different take on Bond. It's such a different looking Bond. It's such a different feel of a movie from the previous James Bond movies that I'm almost like, yeah, he's a really great British secret agent. I just don't know if he's a great James Bond. And it it's really hard for me to kind of reconcile that. And I think I didn't really get on board with him as James Bond until about halfway through the movie when they're getting ready to start this poker tournament. And James Bond has an adjacent room with the female character in the movie, Vesper Lind, and she has gotten him a tailored dinner jacket to wear. And he walks in and he's like, I have my own dinner jacket. She says, no, no, you need to look like you belong at that table. And then the next shot is just him in the mirror wearing this tuxedo. And I was like, wow, what a difference a tailored tuxedo can make, because I was immediately like, yep, that's James Bond. He's James Bond now. <laughs> and for the whole first half of the movie, I was like, Meh, I don't know. And then you see him in like the James Bond attire. And I'm like, yeah, I can get on board with that. So one of the things that really struck me in this particular viewing was that this is supposed to be. James Bond's first mission as a double O agent, which, uh, you know, if you get into the lore of James Bond, a double O agent has a license to kill. They're allowed to do whatever they want to see the mission accomplished, kind of an Ethan Hunt type of character. And so with that, I think I appreciated more than ever that this is James Bond figuring out what it means to be James Bond. And I think that's why I love Daniel Craig's performance so, so much is that he's not always perfect. There's moments where he's flustered, where he walks in and goes, ah, why, why did you get me this jacket? I, I have my own jacket. 
you know, and you just see Vesper just kind of coolly telling him what it means to have a real dinner jacket. And so I think that when you watch this film through the lens of this is the birth of who James Bond will be, I think that's when you really start to appreciate his almost clumsy feeling performance up until he gets to that poker tournament. Yeah, and and that's part of the reason that I really do love this version of Bond at the end of the day is that he messes up so much. It's not something that you typically see with Bond. He usually has everyone pegged and figures everything out 10 steps ahead of everybody else. And in this movie, I mean, he's just consistently failing time and time again and, and, you know, learning his lesson. And he does outwit a lot of people. But the end of the film essentially is Bond failing to complete the mission and losing the love of his life who gets who, who dies. And I really, really like that they're showing us how Bond became Bond in more ways than one. You know, they show us why he's so emotionally detached, why he's so clearly hurt by things in his past. But they also show us growing and learning as a secret agent, you know, how not to royally mess everything up all the time. All right, so Brad, let's let's move on to the rest of the cast. I want to talk about Ava Green as Vesper Lind because the Bond girl is a really complicated sort of role to play nowadays, right? I mean, in, in many of these movies, she's really only there to be eye candy, to be objectified, to have Bond come in and have sex with and leave. And I think that this is a much more complicated, quote unquote, Bond girl than most of the ones we get. And I actually wouldn't even call her a Bond girl because she's such an integral part of this story. And in so many ways, she is like James Bond's equal. And I was just absolutely mesmerized with Ava Green in this role. I think she's just fantastic. Now, I haven't just met you. I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed hearts. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. How was your lamb? Skewered. One sympathizes. Good evening, Mr. Bond. Good evening, Miss Lind. She really draws this movie together. Like, I think that one of the problems with this movie is that there's just so much going on throughout the film, and we'll get to that more later. But I really think that Ava Green brings together all of the disparate pieces and just has a performance that brings an emotional core to the movie. I was blown away with how well she does in this movie. Let's talk for a second about the villain of the movie, uh, Le Chiffre, played by Mads Mikkelsen, who is a great actor, who he's never going to achieve the sort of success that he deserves to achieve in America because, A, we don't like pronouncing hard names, and, you know, B, he is a foreign actor. But he's found a lot of success on American television with the show Hannibal. He plays really complicated and complex villains, and I really liked him a lot in this role as the sort of Bond supervillain, but I hated what they did with his character towards the end of the movie. And Brad, I really want to hear what you think, A, about the performance, but B, what they did to kind of dispose of him at the end of the film. Yeah, I I, I don't really know what to think of the script and how it treats Le Chiffre. Like, 
He's a he's slightly terrifying. And yet I remember the first time he grabs his inhaler and takes a puff. I'm kind of like, what what the like, wait a second. Like this dude's not intimidating at all. He can't even breathe properly. Right. And they never really explain the inhaler thing. Like they explain him bleeding out of his eyes. But then they're also like, and you know what? We should make him an asthmatic. I, I just didn't understand that character beat. Yeah, and I think that, like you just mentioned, that they explained the the bloody eye. I th- I think that's one of the biggest problems with this script, is that it is just brutal how much they tell you about what's going on. Like if I had to listen to Giancarlo explain one more time what's happening in the poker game, like I'm gonna stab my eye out. Yeah, like it it's just so brutal at different parts of this of the movie. But when it comes to La Chifre, like. I think that they were trying to go for a sense of like, he's just a banker. He's not physically intimidating, but his mind is intimidating. Like he's the smartest man in the room, wherever he's at, you know? And so I think they tried to create him as this physically frail, but intellectually powerful man. And it kind of worked. Like he is a little bit terrifying. He's very smart. He's very good at poker. But the whole asthmatic thing was weird. And like you said, at the end of the movie, he's just discarded to the side. And you're kind of like, oh, well, who that like, why did he get killed? It it just didn't make tons of sense. I mean, you find out that there is a bigger organization pulling strings than even this guy. And so James Bond is he watches Ava Green get captured. He pursues. They both get captured. He's getting tortured by La Chifra. And then all of a sudden somebody bursts in and says, you know, you lost our organization, all the money. And he's like, no, no, please, I'll give you the money. And they just shoot him in the head and he's gone. And there's still, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes left in the movie. It- I mean, it it did feel very scorsese of them to just blast him away with no regard for who he had been as a character. Yeah, and I like the thing is, I don't mind them doing that to the character. I just, I don't think that the last half hour of this movie has the tension and the stakes and the interest level of me that the rest of the movie did. I really appreciate that they were trying to show how Ava Green's death, which comes after this in the movie, uh, emotionally affects James Bond. I get it. I appreciate it. And that they're showing that there's something bigger for James Bond to investigate. I also get that. I just think that if you're going to do that to the main villain of the movie, do it with 10 minutes left and then give us that ending. Don't do it with a half hour left in the movie because it really seemed like the whole movie was resolved. We got 15 minutes after that of Bond and uh, Vesper, like, you know, floating around on a gondola. And then it tries to pick back up with another action sequence. And I just I could see what they were trying to do, but it just kind of seemed mishandled to me. Honestly, it felt like the opening of a new movie. And I think that that is the biggest problem with Casino Royale is that they just bit off too big of a bite to chew. I really think that if you had ended this movie with Bond and Vesper happily sailing away on a gondola, it would have left you with questions about like, well, when does Bond become Bond? And he's resigned from his position and he's sailing off into the sunset. And, and, you know, in the next movie, you can kill off Vesper and start the movie with the last half hour of Casino Royale. And then I think you have a compelling villain in Casino Royale that, you know, dies right at the end of the movie. I think that you have questions about who this organization is. You have questions about how Bond is going to get pulled back in. And I really think that you have a spectacular movie. But the last half hour of this movie just it genuinely brings the movie down quite a few notches for me, which is unfortunate because 
the first part of this movie, from him becoming a 007 to the interrogation scene with Le Chiffre, is spectacular. Yeah, it's a really like, great Bond I would, film. I would probably give it a nine and a half out of ten if it was just that movie. Yeah. And I think this says a lot about the script because I, there are parts of the script where I'm like, brilliant. And then there are parts where I'm like, nah, this is this is kind of overdone. And it says a lot about the direction. And Martin Campbell, the director of this movie, this was not his first Bond film. He had done others before. I think that his direction is really sort of like functional. Like the camera angles and the action sequences are very clearly filmed. Like you can follow what's going on really easily. But nothing about his direction or the cinematography really blows me away. They're obviously in very beautiful places, but it's not a very artistically kind of composed movie. And I think that you kind of see some of the the shortcomings of Campbell as a director with the last half hour of the movie. I think it could have been tightened up a lot more. And we'll get into talking about Martin Campbell versus, you know, Sam Mendes, who comes in for Skyfall and Roger Deakins as the cinematographer. We'll get into talking about some of those differences in the second half of the movie. And I have a feeling that we have a lot more to say about this film. But before we get there, Brad, what do you say we hit pause and we try this ancient age? Let's get to it. So today we are trying Ancient Age Bourbon. Now, last season we tried the Ancient Ancient Age, which is a variant of this. They're both made by the Buffalo Trace Company. Ancient Age is a three-year aged bourbon, and it's bottled at 80 proof. There is a 90 proof variety as well. But for your springtime of swill, we had to go with the lowest proof one that we could possibly find. This is Ancient Age 80 proof, and it costs Brad... $11 for a fifth. So we are right in that prime range for the springtime of Swill, under $15 for a fifth. I remember that when we tried the Ancient Ancient Age, which is a whiskey that a lot of bourbon lovers like for its, its sort of uh, the punch that it packs for the price, you did not like that whiskey. And so I'm really interested to see what you think of this one, Brad. Yeah, Bob, as I get into the nose of this, I I'm immediately hit with so many sweet notes. But honestly, overarching all of them, I just feel like I smell corn. Mm. I, it is hitting me really hard, this this aroma of corn. You know what's really funny is I, I'm not quite picking that up on it, Brad. This is a weirdly unbourbony smelling bourbon. Like I get some good caramel notes. I get some of that sweetness and that corn sweetness you're talking about. But then there's almost like a scotchy note to it. There's something really sort of malty and earthy about it. And then you get this kind of astringent chemical smell as well that you get sometimes with with more inexpensive whiskeys. It's a very weird smelling bourbon because it smells more like a cheap blended scotch than it does a bourbon to me. Yeah, it almost has like a citrusy note to go with that kind of earthier smell to it. I, it's actually it's somewhat interesting of a nose. I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. I will say that I have had this poured out for a little while now and my initial notes that I gave on it 
were accurate about that sort of weird scotchy thing going on. After about five minutes of just letting it sit, it calms down a lot. You lose a lot of that astringent smell. And it has this really sort of round, lovely butterscotch smell to it that it still reminds me of a scotch. And I'm almost just like prepared to score this like a scotch instead of a bourbon. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the nose. So what do you say we give it a taste, Brad? Whew. Wow, that's that's pleasant. Hmm. There's not much going on there. No, but, but it's but it's OK. Yeah, I'm not a fan of this, Brad. I'm not going to lie. It's just not great. It's really thin. Like, it's really thin, uh, really sweet up front. And then I feel like it gets more watery the longer it's in your mouth, which is like the opposite of what you're what I'm used to. It doesn't really develop at all. And then the back end is pretty bitter. Lots of wood notes, a little bit of alcohol burn on the finish, but it tastes like a really watered down blended scotch. And I keep looking at the bottle because I poured it directly out of the ancient age bottle. And I'm like, did I miss something? Did I get the wrong thing? Is this was I accidentally using this bottle to store doers? Like what's going on here? Because it just tastes like a watery Johnny Walker or something. I'm going to give it a four on the taste. Yeah, I think I'm actually going to give it a five on the taste. It's fine. It's pleasant. There's nothing bad about it. Um, It doesn't sour for me on the finish the way it did for you. I'm actually going to give it a six on the finish. I I think that it's it's I don't know. I don't have a lot of words to describe it. It tastes like corn all the way through. Uh, It's actually pretty balanced in its nose and and, uh, taste and finish. But yeah, it's it's fine. When I when I know that I paid twelve dollars for it, I'm not expecting a ton. But you know, and it doesn't mean I'm going to give it a ten out of ten. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's fine, Bob. Yeah, I just I think I'll give it a four and a half on the finish. It's bitter, but it's not drying. You get a bit of a Kentucky hug. I think that the alcohol becomes more present on the finish. But like again, this is just not great whiskey. I'll give it a four and a half. And for overall balance, like it's okay. The nose was, I think, the most interesting part of it because it is so scotchy smelling in the glass that I'm tasting it out of. I can't get past that. And I think that once I kind of got it in my head to sample it more like a scotch than a bourbon, it kind of became more palatable to me. So overall, I don't know. It's an okay balance. I'll, I'll give it a five and a half on balance. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it a five on balance. It, it's it's fine. It's just okay. And I think that's the definition of this whiskey in general. You know, I'm only spending $12 on it, so I don't mind it being like this. And honestly, if I just want a cheap kind of porch drinking whiskey that's just refreshing, I, I might buy this. And so at $12, you know, I guess I'll finish off the scoring and say that I'll give this a six out of 10 on value. But, you know, it's 12 bucks. Well, what else do you expect? It's decent. Yeah, so it's actually ten ninety nine. So we're saving even a dollar more and paying eleven dollars. And um, I just, I don't think it's a great value, Brad. Like even compared to the very old Barton that we had last week, I would recommend that ten times out of ten over this. And I think for maybe two dollars, three dollars more, if you could find a bottle of the ancient ancient age, that's significantly better than this. The problem is, this is the cheapest that you're ever going to find basically any whiskey for. And if that's the criteria, then I don't really know how much lower than a five I could go on value just because it's it is what it is. 
So I think I'll give it a five. At the price point, it's kind of what you would expect for a really cheap whiskey, but it is not impressing me at all. So I'm going to give it a five on value, which brings my final score out to a 25 and a half out of 50. Yeah, Bob, I'm coming out to a 28 and a half. All right, so that brings us out to a 54 out of 100 or a 27 out of 50. This is just slightly above that halfway point. And Brad, I don't even know if I really think it belongs there. I'm thinking back to some of the things like Benchmark that we tried really early on. I actually think that I prefer that sort of bland sweetness of Benchmark to this. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to recommend this whiskey. Are you? Um, I'm just going to give it a solid old meh. <laughs> if you want to try it, go for it. It's not going to cost you much money. If you don't want to try it, don't go for it. I, I don't know. It, would you say that that's a decent recommendation? I don't know that that really was a recommendation, but we'll we'll take it for what it is. I think that <laughs> I think your recommendation encapsulated everything about this whiskey. It's just meh. However, we are watching a movie that I would not say is just meh. In fact, I'd say it's a lot of highs and lows that uh, can be unfortunate at times. But Bob, how about you say we get back into the movie Casino Royale? Let's do it, Brad. So that was Ancient Age, a whiskey that I did not like, and Brad is meh on. Yep. So I don't really know. We we have half of a recommendation, I think. Yeah. So getting back into Casino Royale, which is much, much better than Ancient Age. Absolutely. I, I'm kind of frustrated with this movie, Bob, because it has all the elements of being a great movie, and yet there's just something that kind of keeps me from putting it in the upper echelon of movies that we've watched. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would even say the same thing about like Bond movies. I think a lot of people would rank this at or near the top of James Bond movies. And it has so many iconic kind of Bond sequences now. That opening chase scene, even the black and white opening of the movie. Like those are iconic moments. Everything about the card, you know, the the uh, the poker game is iconic. Bond getting poisoned and having to try to resuscitate himself is a super suspenseful sequence. I always loved the shot when after Vesper gets kind of kidnapped and she's laying in the street and Bond has to steer you know, away from her as he's going like a hundred and something miles an hour. It's just such a great sequence. And yet there's something missing from this movie. Well, and I think that the thing that is missing is clarity and direction. Like it, there's just a little bit too much of everything going on. And I think that where this movie shines is where it's it's tightly wound, where you're moving beat by beat just super quickly through what's going on. And you kind of get that through the middle two-thirds of the film. But the start is decent, and the finish just takes so long to get through. And so it just makes this movie a, a hard one for me to rate highly. 
for example, you you get to the end of this movie and there's almost like three to four different points where the movie could end. Like it could have ended right after the interrogation when they arrest Mathis and take him away and just said, oh, that's it. And you could have shown Vesper and him happily, you know, living happily ever after. You could have ended it right after Vesper died and been on a cliffhanger of like, what's going to happen next? But instead, you get another scene where Bond is, you know, shooting a guy who we don't really know who he is. And it just keeps going and going and going. And that part of the cinematography where I felt like the shots were bringing us to resolution, but then we kept going. It was just brutal for me that you just kind of dragged the finish line of this film. And yet at the same time, like. You know, like I said, there are some sequences in this movie that are just so well executed. I think everything about the poker game is really, really well done. I think poker games in general are kind of well suited to movies because every hand is like an immediate kind of suspense. And, you you know, everything is about poker faces. So you're watching the characters look at each other. And, you know, you commented earlier about Daniel Craig's eyes, the looks that he's sharing with Le Chiffre. It's like there's so much subtext going on there. I'm on it. Well, it's 14 million and 500,000. It's up to you, Monsieur Bond. Bond will have to go all in to call his bluff. Go. Call. Gentlemen, show down, please. Full house, kings and aces. Monsieur Le Chiffre. Oops. It's four checks. Monsieur Le Chiffre wins. You must have thought I was bluffing, Mr. Bond. And it it really is kind of frustrating, Brad, that the same director that crafted that sequence, that crafted the poison sequence, is also kind of so sluggish in allowing the movie to kind of grind to a halt at the end of it. Yeah, and the thing is, he gives you these amazing slow sequences, so it's not like he he can only do action. You know, honestly, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Bond has killed the two African gentlemen who were trying to kill him. And Vesper, this is the first time she's witnessed firsthand, you know, what James is capable of. And so you see her sitting in this cold shower, sitting on the ground, just shuddering with fear. And she says that she can't get the blood off of her hands. And James just sits down with her for a minute. And you see him, you know, put his arm around her. And care for her. And it's a beautiful scene where you see his guard come down and he recognizes that she's not built for this the way that he is. And it's an emotional response that I love in that movie. And yet, even scenes like that can't save it from just how drawn out the movie becomes by the end of it. Right after the interrogation scene, I was done with the movie. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Let's wrap it up. Let's move on. And yet you get another 20, 25 minutes, and I, it's just too much, Bob. 
Yeah, and I think one of the big problems is that at the end of the film, you don't really know who he's fighting against. You don't know who's chasing him. You find out in the last 30 seconds of the movie, I think, that the guy's name is Mr. White, but you don't know who he is. And so it's it's no different than like the sort of faceless, nameless people he's chasing at the beginning of the movie. And all of the stakes are gone because you're no longer invested in who the enemy is. So, you know, Brad, I think that we've we've talked about this movie enough. Like we've complained a bit, but I still really enjoyed this movie. I just think that there's something about, I don't know if it's just the direction or the script or the editing. There's something about this movie that keeps it from being a top tier sort of action adventure film in my mind. And if they had just stuck to that sort of middle section of, you know, like you were talking about before, everything up to and including the torture sequence, it would have been maybe the best Bond movie of all time. And the only reason that I think we can still kind of argue what the best Bond movie is, is because this movie is kind of shaggy and has that extra fat hanging off of it. So, Brad, I want to hear your final score on this movie. And would you recommend? Yeah, Bob, like I said, I probably would give this movie a nine and a half out of ten if it was simply finished, you know, right at the end, love, love kind of sequence of him and Vesper. But with this extra, you know, bit hanging on at the end, it really drags the movie down and it makes me enjoy the start of the movie less. It makes the start of the movie feel less meaningful when you get into that, those final sequences. So I'm actually going to give it an eight out of 10. I, I still think it's a great movie. I still think there's spectacular action pieces to it. I really love the emotional core of the movie of the relationship between Vesper and Bond. So there's a lot going on to like, but it's not a perfect movie. There are a decent amount of flaws. The script is very stilted at points as the characters point out obvious things that are happening and it goes on for too long. So I think it's worth an eight out of 10 and I definitely recommend it. It's a great movie. If you are not a James Bond person, but you enjoy movies like the Bourne trilogy or uh, the Mission Impossible movies or the Batman movies, I would say go ahead and give Daniel Craig's version of James Bond to try. Yeah, Brad, I'm kind of in the same place as you. I've been kind of going back and forth between an eight and a seven and a half because a seven and a half, it's basically like a three star movie on a four star scale. And like, I do think this movie is better than just three stars, but I also think that it has like really deep flaws to it. So I think I am going to give it a seven and a half, which would bring our average out to a 7.75. I really do highly recommend this movie. I think James Bond movies are always fun. They're always well-executed action films. There's always, you know, great set pieces and costuming and villains. And it's just a fun ride of a movie. But like you said, there there's a few things in this movie that just kind of keep it from getting pushed over the edge. One of the things that I, I didn't even talk about before, but it was like the setup of the movie of M basically telling James Bond, go get lost, go bury your head in the sand. And then he just like flies off to the Bahamas. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did they not keep tabs on MI6 agents? Does, is he just does he just have a blank check to go wherever he wants until they call him back to service? Like, how does this work? Like, there's certain things in the script that just don't make logical sense even to like the internal logic of the movie and i think that's why it it keeps it from being an eight out of ten for me so there you have it those are our scores for the film but we want to know what you think 
Is Casino Royale the best James Bond film, or is there another one out there that's better for you? You can interact with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. If you give us a call at 216-800-5923, again, the number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we continue our Springtime of Swill series, and we're actually starting a new film series as well. We'll be doing four straight weeks honoring one of our favorite performers, the late, great Robin Williams. So next week, we'll be back talking about the 1993 comedy, Mrs. Doubtfire. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.